Okay, go. It's on. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the regular Saturday night paint marks just plain AA speaker meeting of the Remember We Deal with Alcohol group of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Roxanne. I'm an alcoholic and present secretary of this group. Hey, Roxanne. Our speaker tonight is Paul. Hey, Paul. Let us open the meeting with a moment of silence to do with as you wish, followed by the serenity prayer. Okay, I will now turn the meeting over to tonight's speaker, Paul. Yay! Thanks, everybody. This is my too loud. I feel like I'm inside the shirt speaking to me. Uh, this is my second time at this meeting. I spoke here a few years ago. And, um, What's your name? Paul, Paul Alcoholic. Hi, Paul. I love to start with uh, my golden years were between two and four years old. And then it went downhill from there. That's basically my story. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't know if for me it was much more golden and bright when I was a kid, even the whole landscape. Everyone looked like they smiled more and everything like that. And uh, when I'd be playing, time hadn't set up in my head yet, so I wasn't worried will I be playing next week. So I wasn't trying to get into the moment because I hadn't entertained the idea I could be out of the moment. I was just present because that's what I was. I wasn't in an abusive situation, so when I was walking around my house, I, I didn't think my room was too small or my mother was ugly or I should be wearing gap clothes. None of that was going on. I would be playing with ants and I'd be really with the ants. Yeah. And uh, what happened is about four or five sort of introspection started to occur. My, my mental system developed, my thought system developed, and there was an idea that there was someone there, and that someone, something was wrong with. Yeah? I didn't, couldn't put my finger on it, but my obsession with self started from the negative side. So it wasn't so bad for four or five, but when I went to school, it got a lot worse when I was in the company of others. So I remember the first day they sent me to school, first grade, and I walked into a classroom, sort of like this. I sat down, and uh, I was sitting there thinking everyone was thinking about me, and then so I asked to go to the bathroom, and I, as I was going out of the bathroom door, I stopped, and I was listening in, because I, could, I swore they all stopped talking about me. This is what I suffer from, that obsession with self. Yeah. To me, that's the root of alcoholism. And it was showing its signs very young. I started having that sense of discomfort in my own skin, which is a real drag, because it's the only skin you're going to be in. So if you're uncomfortable in your own skin, just start behind me right away. So when I came in AA, they pointed out to me that that was the root of the problem. And when I looked back on it with hindsight, I remember a day at school around when I was 11, I was walking through the hallway, and a pretty girl said hello to me. And I went home and wondered what she meant by it for about five hours. Yeah. I went over every possible, why, you know, does she like me? Does, it was just an incredible, profound moment in many profound moments of every day. The obsession, it was like I was a little planet and my thought system just revolved around me. And it was very, very claustrophobic. I started to feel that irritable restlessness and discontent. Now, it continued on to about 12 years old. I was playing a, a night game in Little League, and my mother 
didn't come to the game. I was going to walk home by myself after the game. And after the game, two guys, older guys, came in with a couple six packs of beer, and I had my first drink that night. And my athletic career came to a screeching halt because I had found what I'd been looking for. I didn't know what I was looking for, but when I found it, I knew, and it was drinking. Because when I drank, I got relief from the alcohol. Yep. I didn't care about what that girl meant by saying hello to me. I mean, I used to be up. The obsession was so strong. When I'd be at the plate, if someone got up from the stands, maybe there was an emergency or they had to go to the bathroom, I took it personally. I thought they left the ballpark as I was up there. It's this obsession itself. It's plain and simple. <coughs> so what occurred is, as soon as I started drinking, I got relief from that. And so I went at it like crazy. And there was a lot of deterrence being 12 years old, but it's amazing how ingenious we can be. So me and my friends who had the same predilection, we ride our little 10, 10 uh, speed motor, uh, bicycles around the ridge section, looking at any of the garage doors if they were open and seeing if there was a refrigerator in there or any brown rectangular cardboard box, hoping it was a case or something. And at night, we go back to those houses and break into the garage. Usually just had to lift the door and take as much alcohol as we could, ride our bikes to the golf course and hide it in, near the 15th hole. There was all these bushes there. And every weekend, we'd meet and drink it all. And then we'd walk around pissing everywhere. Because basically, that's what happened. And, we'd be, and so what happened is, as soon as I started to drink, I realized I had magnetic appeal to people in uniform. As soon as I started to drink, I started having consequences. At the beginning, it was just a slap on the wrist, and they'd call you up your mom, and then she'd come and pick you up. <clears throat> but it progressed really quickly. So the alcoholism, from this was when I was 12 or 13, by the time I was 16, I got kicked out of high school. I was left in 10th grade, so I left in the end of 10th grade. My mother was, I lived with my mother in a two-family house. After my father died, we really got very poor, and my siblings had moved out, and my mother and I lived in a, a two-family house with one family on top, and we were on the bottom. And on this, and my mother had the bedroom, I had this castle convertible, a couch she pulled out, and I slept there. So, my mother had to work every day, so I was out of school, and I had nothing to do. My mother got me some jobs, I didn't stick. And so I was looking around my career options, which weren't many. I decided I wanted a, like a stay-at-home business, yeah? So I decided drug dealing would be really good. I could, I could, you know, I could stay at home, but it's not my home. It's my mother's home. So there was a cellar underneath my mother's room. It was a cellar, and you'd get in there from the side door and from our kitchen, you know, door. And there was a room there, and I made it my office. I painted it red. And I got those cut-out stars and moons and suns that when the lights are on, it seems to suck the light up. So when you turn those lights, they, it shines. They shine for me anyway, yeah? And we had this little room, and there was a little alcove, which was our little sex room. I had a shower curtain. So any one of my friends who had scored, so to speak, could bring a girl there. We had mono speakers, and I had all Jimi Hendrix collection, and I had... Posters of Don Juan picking peyote and Jimi Hendrix and doing, you know, just having a grand old time, being oblivious to what else was going on, like my mother upstairs trying to sleep. And so one night, I'm walking, I was loitering somewhere near the billiard hall or something. I was walking back to my house. I was going to meet about eight guys there. 
and I see this construction light near a pothole, and it's got a big battery, and it's blinking on and off, and spewing the cars away, I steal it, and I'm going to use it like a strobe light, because I have a thousand hits of LSD at the house, and we're going to trip, so I'm going to use it as a cheap strobe light, and then watch Jimi Hendrix come to life, you know what I mean? Whatever. So we drop this acid, and then suddenly there's a big commotion about two hours later, and the door gets broken in the side door, and four cops come, and I'm arrested, you know, for a thousand hits of LSD. Which didn't go well in my hometown, you know, in Rockwell Center. It was like a threat to the way people thought in New York, Long Island, suburbia. So, I get arrested that time. I tell them it's speed, and then they re-arrest me when the lab report came back, it was LSD. And this set off a train of circumstances that brought me a lot of misfortune very quickly. I got arrested four more times in like three months. Very, very similar, and the charges kept getting worse, yeah? But at this point, the, the alcoholic of my type is unwilling to pay any consequence tomorrow not to feel uncomfortable now. I will pay any consequence tomorrow not to feel uncomfortable now. The demand I'm living under is to get relief from alcoholism. Yeah? And I do it with alcohol and drugs. And all society was offering me was punishment. They said, if you do any of all that stuff, you're going to jail. And that wasn't a sufficient deterrent. I would just keep doing it, get arrested. As soon as they let me out, I'd get rid of it again. It seemed like it would never stop. And that's what it really seemed like as my life went on. Because it kept spiraling worse and worse. So there I am, looking at three years probation before I'm 18. I was in a pre-probation program, where at the end I had this, this he probably won't mind if I use his name, my probation officer was George Sawson. After a year of seeing him, I was selling him drugs, the probation officer. I mean, the, you know, the hypocrisy of the whole system was ridiculous. I never even met my lawyer until the day I finally went to court after three years. He went into the back room with the other lawyer and the judge, and I was weak, relief on a famous demeanor. How did that happen? My family, my brother, who was rich, he paid him off. I never saw the guy, Mr. Kaplan. He came in one day, he says, when they're reciting all the charges, don't laugh. That's all you have to do. Just stand there sober, all right? And then they release me. So at 20, I'm now under the probation, and my family has a meeting, about me, and they say, we want you to take this, your show on the road, Paul. Not living with Bob anymore. And at this point, it was Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta. So I had my little disco act. I took it to Miami Beach, which is like a Muslim going to Mecca, because what I did was down in Miami, a lot of it. So I went there, 1977, and I lived there for three years. Now, after a few years, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist, yeah? After about three years, and that was my idea of success, after about three years of active alcoholism, my idea of success was not to be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> my goals had to win quickly. <laughs> so I went to Miami for three years, I didn't get arrested, so that was like the highlight of my career. But while I was there, the transformation of, from the young Catholic kid from Long Island got totally completed, where if you did what I did, you would recognize I did. Yeah? So if you were at a club and you did what I did, you knew I did what I did, because you did it, you know what I mean? It was incredible. So, 1920, so I came, uh, 1980, I moved back to Long Island, and I stayed with my sister's house. 
And I went to a spiritual meeting. I had met a guru when I was younger. And I wanted to try to reinvigorate that because I, I knew I was pretty screwed. And I went to a meeting, a spiritual meeting, and I left on the way back to where I was staying. I stopped at a bar where my friend was the bartender. Sunday night, January 30th in Long Island, freezing cold, nothing's going on. I walked in the bar around 10 o'clock. There's only a bartender and a waitress. He gives me a quaalude and gives me a couple shots of Grand Meunier. I leave. I get home. Should have been the end of the evening. But that irritability, restlessness, and discontent kicked in. There was an advertising in my head. A big party probably erupted at the bar. You're missing out on a huge party. So I got in my car. I drove down there. The last thing I remember, I was closing the door, the light in the, in the front, closed the door, and the next thing I knew, I woke up somewhere, and I didn't know what was happening, and my sister-in-law was in the doorway, and by her look, I knew I was through. So what happened is, I got run over twice in the same night, by the same car. It was an only an alcoholic thing. Not, not too many people get run over. The guy doesn't know what he hit, so he backs up to see, and it's you that he backs up on. That's what happened. So now, 28 years old, I thought I had trouble before. I'm in a world of trouble now. Eight compound fractures in the legs, broken hip, broken shoulder, lacerated stomach. Uh, you know, you're in a three by seven foot room. I mean bed for like eight months. Talk about isolation and loneliness. The root about one of the big archetypes of our disease. There it was. And really feeling like no one could understand me. All my friends visiting, they were not in the condition I was in. They came and left. I had so many roommates that came in and left, and I was the one stable thing in that room, me. Yeah? Two months in the hospital, six more months in the hospital bed at my sister's house because I realized after two months, you don't go get well in a hospital. You do not get well there. I had to get out of there. And they wouldn't let me leave unless my sister had a hospital bed and I made an agreement they would keep picking me up and bringing me back to the hospital every day for a shift. Yeah? So ten months. What happens is, about October, I get on crutches. In January, I moved here to Santa Cruz. My friend had a big company in Santa Cruz, offered me a job. He didn't know what I'd been doing for the last few years. He knew me when I was younger. So he hired me. I came to Santa Cruz. You think I had a chance to change my whole life? I duplicated the same behavior as I did before. Now I'm selling coke clubs on crutches. You know what I mean? Walking around, thinking I'm cool on crutches. It's just insane, pathetic in a way. It spiraled, it spiraled so fast, I left Santa Cruz in 81, moved to San Francisco, stayed there to 80 to 82 to 85. At 80, 1985, see the type, see if I manage my own life, what happens is I manage it to the point where other people have to manage it for me. That's what happens. If I'm managing my own life, I'm going to end up, someone else is going to be managing it for me. And that's exactly what happened. 1985, I overdosed. When I came to in the hospital, my, the shit was kicked out of me. I went back to where I was living at the time, near the beach in San Francisco. I had spent all my rent money, and the landlady lived where I lived. She was going to be back at 6, and I had to pay the rent. I had spent it the night before. 
I should have been concerned, but I wasn't, so I sat there from 10 o'clock to about 5.15, drinking her liquor and using her phone, and then at 5.15 I started wondering, what am I going to do? I got the whole day to plan my escape, but I'm waiting until we open at 6. What am I going to do? So I remembered this place at 8th and Fulton. A girlfriend had dropped me off there. She became my ex-girlfriend quickly. And when I walked in and asked what it was, it was called the Lancet Street. It was a living program for convicts and drug addicts and alcoholics. And so I remember that place, and I left that 48th and Fulton, and in its center was at 8th and Fulton, and I walked down there, and I entered Delancey Street at in April something at 6 o'clock, and they had a clock bigger than that opposite me, and they had a bench. And when you sat on the bench, it signified you've lost the game of life. Yeah. You were malleable to suggestions, and you're asking them to give you sanctuary, really. So they're all running around, all these people looking very important. I sit there at 6, and I say to myself, I'm going to give these people the 6.30 to see me, or I'm out of here. Like I had a lot of important engagements <laughs> I didn't have a positive business, I didn't know where to go, but I'm already putting this condition on the situation. 6.26, they bring me into a room, and they start asking me questions. A lot of them would go over my head. But one caught my attention, and they said, do you want a place to stay tonight? And that's what I was looking for. And I go, yeah. And they go, well, you have to make a two-year commitment. <laughs> oh, sure. I'll stay for two years. Try me up. So 628, they accept me as a full-fledged member of the Lancer Street, released me into the mass population, 300 people. And the amazing thing is, I stayed there two years. It, it was proven to me that Delancey Street was a big enough buffer between me and me. <laughs> so, 85, 87, I was a resident of Delancey Street. And I, I'm not proud of it, but I thrive in an institutional <laughs> setting. And people are telling me what to do. I do really well. It's when I'm following my own indications, that's what's going to shit it's the fan. <laughs> so, about after a year being in the program, they don't have any AA or anything now, and I started to think about what my problem was, which was a problem in itself, thinking. So I started thinking, I'm thinking, oh, it's not products, you know. And that's true. And then I, and then I made a little amendment. But I can probably drink. Now, I didn't run it by anyone in the program. I just filed it away. Oh, I can probably drink. I'm now setting myself up for permission. All right. I can probably drink. Yeah, I can probably die, too. So, I could continue on. And, you know, Delancey Street says they have a huge success rate. But you got to look at the fine print. You can't leave. <laughs> if you live there the rest of your life, you may stay sober. But most of everyone I've ever known who was in there that left got high. So... Around 20 months, they say, listen, we want you to stay five more years. I said, I don't want to stay five more years. <laughs> so they say, I said, what other options do you have? That doesn't sound like an option to me. So they go, well, we have a workout program. I said, yeah, well, I'll take that. It's all right, well, if it's 20 months you're here, for you to graduate in two years, you've got to go for four months. And these are the requirements. You've got to find an outside job. Get a checking account, buy, get a car, and after four months, you can if you find a place to live, you can move out and you'll graduate. And that's what I did. I got a job delivering specialty hardware, sell the market, had a checking account, bought a little, bought a little Toyota Corolla, you know, 
And I'm looking, so after four month walk, all I gotta do is find a place to live. So I'm looking around San Francisco. There's a beautiful place on Larkin and Filbert. You can see both bridges, Bay Bridge, Golden Bridge, Bay Bridge. Two young girls lived there. It was cheap, I could afford it, really nice. But there was 20 other applicants for the place. But at this time, I looked good. I had khaki pants, blue blazer, I hadn't drank in two years. And I like to say my, my realtor was Dr. Jekyll. They really liked Dr. Jekyll. They actually let me sign on lease as Dr. Jekyll. But Mr. Hyde was going to be moving in. <laughs> now, the Lancy Street had been telling me, I was, I was Dr. Jekyll, though I was Mr. Hyde for quite a while. That was over, and it was going to be Dr. Jekyll from now on. I was hoping they were right, but I had a strong suspicion they weren't. And as soon as I moved out of Delancey Street into that place, I got off of work my first day. I had no one telling me what to do, and it seemed like an eternity before I, you know, it was 4.30, and I'm not going to go to bed till 11. Well, how long am I going to do with these six and a half hours? So, well, unbeknownst to my new roommates, <laughs> Mr. Hyde was cooking it up in the room, and it started to feel irritable, restless, and discontent, and it started running a story about the last two years, what I have been missing. Had no facts at all of getting shot at and run over. It was more mythical, romantic. All those lovely nights, you know, jonesing and stuff like that. So I bought the advertisement, got into my Toyota Corolla, which I was going to lose two nights later, drove down to a bar on California Pope called the Rosie Thistle. We used to call it the Nose of Sniffle then. And we used to just go and buy drugs there. So I went in there, armed with this idea I could drink, yeah? But also incredibly obsessed with self. So I'm thinking that, that you know, the bartender has been getting my newsletter. Do not serve Paul Heaven, you know? But no, he doesn't remember me at all. And I ordered my first beer in two years. He gives it to me, and I start drinking it. And nothing happens. I have total impunity. AA police don't rush in, the lights don't go on. What do I do? I order another beer. Yeah? I'm drinking the other, the second beer, and halfway through it's not enough. I want more, whatever more is. Maybe it's more alcohol, for me it's more of something else. Yeah? But I wanted more, so I was looking around the room, and the same guy who used to sell more two years before is still selling more there. He had like a franchise. <laughs> and so I kissed his ass enough, which is incredible how, why you have to kiss people's ass to get more. Huh? Like if I want a pair of pants, I buy it. But if I want that, I gotta kiss someone's ass and listen to their life story. But I get it. I go out to my Toyota Corolla, and I do, <laughs> I do a line of more, and it was, it's like that movie The Shining with Jack Nicholson at the end, when he goes through the bathroom door, he goes, here's Johnny, which exactly like that. I was possessed, once again, by the parasite of alcoholism. And don't fool yourself, alcoholism is a mental parasite. It is a mental parasite. It doesn't have a life, and it gets yours. It takes you over, and it uses you and me as transportation. Oh, I don't believe that. Then look at how many of us get to the same parking spaces, institution, jails, and death. We've got the same fucking driver. We may have different Fords and Buicks, but we're going to the same fucking hell. So the driver's the exact same. So what happened is, the parasite woke up. It was just dormant for those two years in the Lancet Street, biding its time. 
I had 10 months, you know, I had two years of health, so it was a 10-month run I went on from that night. And I'll tell you, we all know the definition, the intimate sense-felt definition of pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. It was times five. Yeah. I'd gone to college in Delancey Street. They had told me this whole fucking period of my life was over. And here it was, back with a vengeance. So fucking quick. It hit me before I even knew it. I was down the tubes. So I had my two running shoes, running it, running from the fucking, that thing, my drinking and drug use, but it caught up to me. And like they say, one person's definition of a bottom is when you can't lower your standards quick enough, you know? <laughs> it catches you with your pants down and something happens. Well, what happened with me is I went out March 21st, uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 1988. Was it? I guess so then. Yes. I went on a four-day bender. I lost the car that wasn't mine. It was my friend's. I ended up in a trailer park in Calistoga, about an hour and a half north of San Francisco, sitting watching an Audie Murphy movie on a lousy TV in a trailer with a guy I didn't know, drinking a bottle of Royal Gate vodka. You ever remember the Royal Gate? Yes? In case you always enter at the end, the Royal Gate. I really I, I followed them from the years I used it. And uh, I have to admit, their customer service is incredible, because realizing their clientele, they switch from glass to plastic. Before you drop the glass, the night would be ruined, now it bounces back. That's <laughs> <laughs> very, very smart of them, knowing their clientele. So what happened is, I'm sitting there drinking with this guy, passing this bottle back and forth. I don't know him, we're waiting for a mutual acquaintance, who knows. And then, and then, I look at him, and I, he's got a big bulbous nose, a varicose face, and I see him, I see, see him, I see him myself, this guy's a bum, you know? But lo and behold, he was looking back at me like I was a bum. And that was the moment of clarity. And it was an amazing thing, because a lot of people come to AA through bottoms, but that's not my story. You know, it was a regular day at the office that it happened. All I was doing is trying to stay loaded until I could get high. That's what I was trying to do. But something interrupted the whole thing, almost like a download. It stopped my head for about four minutes and new information downloaded that I hadn't thought of a minute before, which was, I better go out and call up the Lancy Street, see if they'll take me. Yeah? So I did. I didn't have another drink with him. I went to the phone, phone booth. They didn't have cell phones then. And I called up the Lancy Street. And they had been getting my newsletter, and they said, no, you can't just waltz, waltz right in here. You can come back in a month for another interview. That doesn't mean you'll get accepted. And I said the first honest thing I said in ten months, and I said, I don't think I have a month, you know. I could feel the terminal situation I was in. And so I called a woman who I used to party with and asked her if she'd come up, and I must have sounded pretty humble, and she decided to help me once again. Drove up the hour and a half, during that hour and a half, I had the miraculous alcoholic recovery. Forgot the moment of clarity, and I wanted to get high. Of course, I had the big obstacle, which is I had no money. So I had to try to convince her to get the six-pack of talls, the, you know, the coke, rent the hotel room, get the dirty magazines. But she had followed that equation with me many times, hadn't been that satisfying for her. So she said, no, we're not doing that. She says, you want a place to stay tonight, which sounds very familiar. I said, yeah. She says, you got to go to an AA meeting. 
And this was incredible progress. The last time I had that deal, I made a two-year commitment. Now I got to use one hour. So it was progress, for sure. So I went to my first meeting, March 21st, 1988, at the Salvation Army. It was a men's meeting, so she just, just dropped me off there. I don't know what she did. Probably got high that hour. They came back to pick me up. But when I was in that room, I felt hope. That's the first thing I felt. And it allowed me to feel how hopeless I was. Because when I was in that trailer, that download, I forgot about it. It was like a CNN newsflash. Just a headline, no story. And the headline was, I'm screwed. Yeah? Now, I, everyone who knew me knew I'd been screwed for quite a while, but it had been escaping me. And I was this screwed as I was. But some sober assessment occurred that's never changed in the last 27 years. I had the perfection of the first step before I even got there yet. Yeah. So, AA was just a playing out of that download, basically. The solution was encapsulated in that five-minute moment, and it's been playing itself out for 27 years. I don't see it losing any energy. It seems to reinvigorate itself just by entertaining it. So, what happened is, uh, she took me to my first meeting, I left, I went to sleep, and the miracle happened that night, when I woke up, I didn't have that huge urge to escape. Yeah? Some senses had come back to me, and so I knew what to do. I said, I'm not going to make it, so I better call this AA and see if there's an earlier meeting. I couldn't wait till 8 o'clock, I'd be dead by then. So they tagged one at 12, and I went to that meeting. I've never stopped going now for 27 years. So what happened with me, I had the, the spirit of the third step already. Everyone in this room has surrendered many times in their lives. The effect of the surrender isn't the surrender, it's what you surrender to. I surrendered to drugs, I surrendered to women, I surrendered to the police, I surrendered to the Lancet Street. They all had their effects, and the greatest effects I've ever had from a surrender is surrendering to the higher power through it. Yeah? Delancey Street may have been right. Yeah, you'll stay sober, but you got to live here forever. AA has allowed me to become a free-range alcoholic. Yes? I don't have to be cooped up or institutionalized. I have a life and I can roam around. I'm not afraid I'm going to get struck drunk because I have a very intimate sense of the presence of the Spirit. Yeah? So... So the power over alcohol was obvious. The trick, the real, to me, the real activity of the active disease of alcoholism is in managing. Yeah? A lot of us, not right now, are not drinking, but we're being driven crazy by our attempts to control and manage. Yeah? The real spirit, the real living spirit of the, of the first step and the solution is in the third, second aspect of the first step, which is why my life was so unmanageable was because I was managing my managing it was producing the unmanageability. So when I gave up the care of my life and my will over to a power greater than me, which I had just had the experience of doing to Delancey Street, and I wasn't in Delancey Street for 28 days, I was there for two years, day in and day out. And when I left there, I didn't like them, I didn't like their principles, but I had to admit my, my life was better with them running it than it ever did with me running it. So I had the spirit of the third step, 
But the rightness of the third step was missing. And that's what AA gave me. The spiritual component of it, which is everything. So, <clears throat> I got that. I got that third step. But still what happened, that obsession itself was causing that irritability, restlessness, and discontent. Yeah? So what occurred is I tried to work on that as best I could. And then my 11th year of sobriety, I had a download about it. And I realized that the real root of the problem, and this is just my humble opinion, isn't obsession with self, it's identification as a self. Yeah? The mental obsession is to reinforce the identification. In other words, the parasite of alcoholism has convinced the host that it's the host. I'm living for the parasite. I'm not living for me. Yeah. The parasite is what has jacked into my thought. You don't believe it? They've studied some rip. They've studied parasites much further now. I'm talking about a mental parasite. There's parasites that are things. There's one called toxos, right? They're in our brain right now. A lot of humans have it in their brain. They're in a lot of mammals. And these toxos, they're in rats and cats, uh, rats and mice. And where they can, ha- where they can reproduce is only in the gut of a cat. Yeah? So when they take over a rat or a mice, when that rat and mice sees a cat, they run towards the cat. It overrides all the instinct of self-preservation the rat mice has, the act, the parasite overrides it and drives the rat right to the cat so the cat can kill it, and when it gets to the stomach, it can reproduce. The parasite of alcoholism cannot drink. It uses you to get the drink. The parasite of alcoholism does not, does not have a life. It uses us to express the life. It takes us over. How does it take us over? They talk about the, the reliance on self. How are you relying on self? You're believing the, the contaminated thought system. You're taking alcoholic thoughts as your own. When you come into a meeting, when I came into AA, I had an incredibly thick shell of terminal uniqueness. I didn't think anyone could understand me. No one thought like I did. No one felt like I did. No one did the heinous things that I did. I come in the AA, after three months I'm hearing people share their thoughts, their feelings, and reactions to life, and they sure sound like mine. Yeah? So, if I have my thoughts, and, and then a lot of other people seem to have my thoughts, how could they be my thoughts? How could I claim ownership of a public system? You're thinking just like me. I don't know the fuck who you are, but you think like I do. Because <coughs> they're not our thoughts, they're alcoholic thoughts. There's one parasite with a set of characteristics spreading its expression in millions of hosts. Millions of hosts are demonstrating the same characteristics. All of us demonstrate in different countries, in different societies. Same characteristics. I've been to meetings in India, Malaysia, <coughs> Thailand, everywhere. Yeah. Alcoholics are alcoholics. They have the same thoughts, the same feelings, and the same reactions because they're not our feelings. They're parasitical feelings. It's the freedom is from self, not for a self or by a self or as a self, but from the self. That's what happened to me in the 11th year. 
For the first time in my life, I entertained the possibility that what's running the my show is a foreign installment. Yeah? A foreign installment. As soon as I saw it as something other than me, the next thought I could entertain, I could be free from it. Instead of trying to be free as it. You know what, how crazy it is to try to come become a spiritual parasite? The parasite has no spiritual quality. None whatsoever. I don't care. You clothe the snake, you feed the snake, you pet the snake, the snake's gonna fucking bite you. And then you ask, why? I'm a snake. Alcoholism is going to treat you alcoholically. You can't socialize it, civilize it, therapize it. It's, it's just waiting in the bushes to bite you in your fucking proverbial ass. There's a freedom from, a freedom from the bondage of self. It's promised in the book. Page 85 or something. It says, you'll see fighting everyone and anything. Yeah. You'll be placed in a position of neutrality with no further effort on your part. The problem will not exist for you anymore. Now that's a damn good solution. For a problem that had so much influence in my life not to exist is a damn good solution. Now if you want it just not to be an experience, if it doesn't exist as you, it'll become a state. Instead of surrendering and taking back, you'll stay surrendered. You'll have a sober assessment, you're fucked, and you'll never be fucked again. You'll admit your powerlessness, and you'll be filled with power. All the requirements on our side, this Holy Spirit is full of grace, willing to extend. We're the ones who say, no, 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 because we believe our own shit up here. If you take a, a thought to be a thought, you travel a lot lighter than when they're yours. If you had my thoughts in your head, you'd realize how insane they were. But you're having the same thoughts thinking they're you, and you think they're incredible novel ideas. It's the identification as the thinker which is the bondage. It uses thoughts to bond you. The identification as a feeler, a facility that is used to, using feelings to facilitate the bondage. You don't have to get rid of thoughts. Get rid of one thought. I'm the thinker. That's the one. See what happens. Try it. Maybe you'll have a radical relief. That will stabilize. You will be recovered from alcoholism. And you'll know serenity and comprehend peace. You'll have a new freedom and a new happiness. Not another rehashed idea of what your mind thinks is freedom. Yeah, but a new freedom. Totally contrary to how you think. A new happiness, totally contrary to how you think. Bill W. says that the problem resides in the mind. What could, what could reliance on self be but having faith in your thoughts? How can you be worried? How can you have a feeling of fear if in this room there's no apparent threat? You must be reacting to something that's not happening right now. You're reacting to next Wednesday or last Friday. Is that being alive or is that an interpretation? And the interpretation is going to get to a point where it's going to be so dry, it's going to leave you to fuck it, and once you hit fuck it, that's the alcohol surrender, it's going to say, let's get loaded, what's the fucking point? And you will. You can't stay dry forever. The 
parasite's going to drain you. What parasite in nature ever gives anything to the host? It just takes from the host. So there's a freedom. It's available. It's available for all of us. Like it says in the second tradition, there is a loving God that's expressing itself in our group conscience. We get together and grace abounds, man. You can sense the presence. And if you took us all individually, you may all be called assholes. But together we produce a sweet perfume. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, you rest, and you get filled up, and you don't know. The most progress I've ever had is sitting on my ass at meetings. I swear to God. 27 years of doing nothing has been the best thing I ever did. I learned more doing nothing than all the doing I used to do. The secret's in the ass. It comes to us mostly. So I'm going to do it here, Sam, here last week. There's a lot of wisdom going on out to rack them now. <laughs> Instead, your ass is, you know, self. What happens is we go up the ass itself. And then you're looking for divine pathologists all day. You get pulled out, but you're strumming right back up the ass. They said, you know, you'll know, you'll hear a pop. What's that? That's your head coming out of your ass. That's the awakening. You'll pop out it. You'll, what? So yes. That's that's it. I guess that's it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Paul. <laughs>